0: Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative?
1: Roberto is an award-winning Dominican-American educator with over 15 years of educational administrative experience. Since teaching ninth grade English, he's worked in and led schools from pre-K to 12th grade in the public, private, and charter sectors. He has brought innovative leadership ideas to revamp school cultures in order to meet students' needs and help them improve. His work is characterized by a passion for supporting young people, prioritizing social justice, and a dedication to excellence. Currently, he's co-founder and executive director of Multicultural Classroom and lives in Tampa, Florida.
0: Welcome, Roberto. Thank you so much for making this so easy to schedule and to come on the show. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: And also, we send the best to your wife and the family. Um, thank you. And thank her for holding down the fort so you could be here today.
1: Yes, indeed.
0: <laughs> so on your website, you share a history of collective immigration, which sounds like the groundwork in your family and of multicultural classroom. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure. Yeah. So my wife is an immigrant to this country from the Dominican Republic. My parents are immigrant. Her parents are immigrants, both from the Dominican Republic. We were raised, I was born and raised, and she was raised in the city of Lawrence, Massachusetts, a historically immigrant city. And so This is at the core of who we are, that immigrant story. But we also think that the immigrant story is not just at the core of who we are. It's really at the core of all of our experiences, minus indigenous folks from this particular land. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, whether we all acknowledge that or not, it's a whole different deal. Uh, But certainly we do at Multicultural Classroom acknowledge the immigrant experience and talk about how it is that it's impacted us. Our work is definitely influenced by the sacrifices that our parents made to leave their country, culture, language, to come and adapt and sacrifice so that we can have better lives. And we're grateful that they've done that and we wanna carry that forward.
0: Yeah, that's clear. Look, I I agree, we should all be able to take part in the immigrant experience. Unfortunately for African Americans, that's not necessarily the story, although it should be. So I embrace the idea and would love for us to feel empowered as such. I think it's amazing. And and it's very clear that it's it's at the core of your work and that you wanna develop a language for everyone to appreciate that story. Tell us about the messages you're cultivating
1: in your home for your children. Yeah. We talked to our children about many things. We talked to them about their identity as the children of Dominican American parents. We talked to them about their skin color. We talked to them about their hair texture. We talked about, we talk with them about their Uh, our collective faith journey. We talk to them about injustices that are happening in our society. We talk to them about politics, even when we don't want to, because sometimes that conversation makes its way to us Mm. through them. Right. And so now, obviously, you want to engage in age-appropriate conversations. Mm -hmm. Our children are seven, four, and one. Okay. So the seven-year-old has more comprehension that she comprehends everything but she comprehends enough to to start that dialogue and go as far as her understanding allows her to go right My f- the four-year-old not quite there yet but th- there are some things that are on his level that we do talk to him about. Because we know, and the studies have showed, even at a young age, children are developing their understanding of differences. Children are developing their uh, and and demonstrating biases. They might not have that language, but it'll manifest in different ways. We think about the doll experiment or things of the sort, or Mm -hmm. blue eyes, brown eyes, so on and so forth so we're not afraid to engage in those conversations with our children and we think that doing so better equips them as they continue to navigate through their own experience we're giving them language we're giving them tools we're giving them the resources to to be able to talk about these experiences that are relevant to them and to do so in a way in in which they're knowledgeable uh, to the extent that their young minds permits them to be, right? Right. So sometimes we, I think sometimes we undervalue how much children know or how much they're able to understand, Uh, maybe because we're afraid of Well, yeah, I do think for a lot of people, it's really fear. It's (laughs) uh, Their fear-based response paralyzed them from engaging in courageous conversations with their children, Uh, whether it's courageous conversations about race or other topics and other intersections.
0: You bring up two things. Uh, One is the idea that parents panic as their kids start to get older because they want to force all of this education. Separate from the idea of the fact that your children have been watching you the whole time. Like you're saying, they're absorbing the lessons in real time and it's already been laid. The values and the important messages you really want them to get, it's already internalized through the process of just being around them and then watching you as being their role models and their primaries. So I love that idea that you're having these conversations at a young age that's the appropriate. I think that's just so on point from a mental health perspective as well as a developmental educational perspective. The second thing is, you reminded me of a story when I worked in a private school, pretty predominantly white private school, and these elementary school kids were playing, they were playing with dolls. And I guess the black child said that they were going to be something that was like the leader of the household. And the white child told her she couldn't be, she had to be the housekeeper. And that was about, man, that's like, what, 25, 30 years ago? And so that you bring that up now, it's like, it still exists. This idea that time is past is not at all true. So I, I just think it's so important that you're giving them images and messages and value to value who they are now in this place and time.
1: Yeah, it's so unfortunate that it does exist and it's real. And that's why we do the work that we do. There's a lot of this, obviously, uh, a movement and this resistance to a lot of these conversations, and I'm in Florida. Prior to this, we were in Texas. These are uh, interesting states to <laughs> be doing the type of work that we do. Nonetheless, the actions by many in these places continue to reinforce why we need to do what we do. Right, And ultimately, we want to be individuals that are breaking down the walls that create barriers for us to connect more deeply as community.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I know region is really important and and we definitely know certain states have very challenging politics. Do you find it more difficult in some states rather than others? Is it that obvious to you? Yes. Okay. Care to name anyone? What's that? I said, care to name anyone that's more difficult than the other or more challenging?
1: Well, I mentioned two already. Okay. Florida so- Texas. Mm-hmm. We were recently in Iowa for a conference. Lorena was the keynote. And so we had the opportunity to hear firsthand from teachers in Iowa. They're having their challenges over there too. Okay. Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee. I keep going.
0: Yeah, no, I'm getting, I'm getting the idea. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting uh, the idea.
1: Massachusetts, where we're from, is not on that list.
0: Okay. Even though, even the parts that are more challenged with uh, diversity.
1: Now you're getting micro with it.
0: Okay, I'm just saying, it's what I do. <laughs> okay, fair enough.
1: No, the parts that are challenged with it, they're going to be challenging where, wherever you are. But what we're talking about, like as a state and yeah policies that are being put forth by by the state. There are particular states in which it's loud, it's in your face, the resistance is strong. There's a lot of fear. There's also a lot of, there are a lot of people just straight up lying. Yes. And there are also people who are, you know, not everybody's lying. I think there really are some people who just don't have a clue what they're talking about but they got sucked into the vacuum of those that are lying. And so you'll ask them questions about, name the thing, right? The easy one for me to surface is critical race theory because of all the hysteria. But you start asking them about it, they can't really tell you what it is. They'll say that their kids are being taught critical race theory in elementary schools, and middle school, and I think about that. Like, really? They're being taught critical race theory. Now, that there are some things that are being linked to that. Mm-hmm. Okay, sure. All right. But Name those things. Talk about that. Uh, but let's not start making stuff up. Just for the sake of trying to protect our comfort as it relates to engaging in conversations about race and equity and, and anything that it doesn't reinforce the hi- hierarchical power structures that exist in this country.
0: So you led into this next question I'm going to ask you, and it's, it's a, just give me a second to set it up. So the way I was thinking about it is like you have two different challenges, two different realities. I mean, you have many challenges and, and I'm sure many barriers, but you have two different realities you're working with. On one hand, you don't want to alienate the people of which you speak, these who don't know and need the education to know. On the other hand, you have the global majority who is working now within a context of being we're tired of people not knowing, we're tired of the anger that's fueled by the fear, we just have no more patience for it at all. And depending on where they are in their own racial identity development, you have to balance both of those realities. How do you do that? How do you consider that in your programming?
1: That's a great question. We try to approach it in the following manner. I worked at a school several years ago where I served as Director of Multicultural Affairs and Community Development, St. John's Prep in Danvers, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And I was the first person in that role, 26 years old. Wow. Yes, wow, because I was young Mm-hmm. And I also didn't really know what I was doing, but I had enough courage to allow myself to fail. It's beautiful. And learn along the way and get better. And as I got better, the programming got better, and I was able to better serve others and train people, so on and so forth. Anyways, the reason I mentioned this school and my experiences at school is because I recall... One of my colleagues, I was in the administrative leadership team, the senior academic team. And one of my colleagues always used to talk about third and the third. You got a third of the folks that are supporting what you do. They're allies in the work. You got a third of the folks that are resisting. And their voice of resistance is strong. But then you got a third in the middle. That's the group you want to target. Hmm. The folks over here, that third that's resisting, th- their minds are made up. It's okay. going to be hard to undo that. Can be, but to your point of us being tired, that's not where you want to channel all your energy. hmm. You want to channel your energy with people who are, if they're not on the cusp, at least they're close, they're open, right? Because it, when you're open, then you could process some things that perhaps you did not consider previously, okay. if you come into it with the open mind. Right. We all should come into it with an open mind. Now, we might not agree on everything at the end of the day. But we can't even start the conversation if we don't come in with a willingness to remain open to hearing things that challenge us. Open to experiencing something different. Open to seeing things from a different lens. And so we try to lean into our work by maintaining that understanding that it breaks down to a third and we want to focus on that third that's in the middle and move them forward. That's great.
0: I'm going I'm going to let me I'm just switching questions in my head but you got me thinking but I want to share this meme that I I've seen and I want to get your response to it and then I'll ask the other question. So it says, if anti-racist and anti-bias education was the standard and parents and caregivers were explicitly teaching children not to be racist, those children couldn't get radicalized, quote unquote, from posts or websites online spouting hate speech and inaccurate history. you agree with that?
1: I'll be honest with you. That was a long statement. Okay, let
0: me do it again. Let me do it again. If anti-racist and anti-bias education, basically what you all are about, was the standard, not called critical race theory, but the standard, and parents and caregivers got on board, and they were explicitly teaching them not to engage in racist values and belief systems, those children wouldn't get radicalized, which is the new language of the extreme who want to kill people, radicalized. That's the language that they've grasped onto. And they wouldn't jump on to that if they just saw some things on some websites or listened to Tucker Carlson. They wouldn't be so inclined if they had this base as the origin of their understanding, as the core of their understanding.
1: I mean, it's essentially what you all do. I think that having the base is more beneficial than not having the base. Mm. Now, do I think that it would absolve all evil... No. Yes. There's a lot of evil in our world, right? It exists, it's real. But I've seen not only firsthand, but historically, we've seen people that have projected their evil thoughts and evil actions towards particular people groups that have changed over time. That change may have come with a particular experience. That change may have come with more understanding through their obtained knowledge. That change may have come through their proximity. Brian Stevenson talks a lot about the notion and proximity, and that's a lot of what his message in Just Mercy was about. And so... It wouldn't change everybody, but I certainly do believe it would be a lot more beneficial for our society if we were operating from that base.
0: I appreciate that. So what do you think is the most important message for teachers and administration to know about not only the immigration experience, but the anti-bias, anti-racist experience um, that can show up in their classroom without even without their awareness?
1: Sorry, but I want to come back to because you mentioned the immigration experience. I want to come back to how we started the conversation okay. and you had mentioned about African-American folks not not having that. And so I want to just contextualize what I was saying because I, I mentioned indigenous folks with this land, but I didn't want to get into a conversation that would take over this whole episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think black folks in this country, right, if you, you track migration patterns just in this country, a lot of families that left the South to go up north, to go to all types of places, whether you're talking about Detroit, Right. or Massachusetts, New York, so on and so forth. Like So to me, when I think about the Black experience in this country, and I think about migration patterns, that's partly how I think about it. Got it. Because I think there's a lot of nuance there. There's a lot of history there. There's a lot of richness when folks could find. You're not tracking your history and heritage to African territory. Fine, but when you track it to your family's history in Virginia and and North Carolina and other states, and are, are able to share some rich history that's there, to me that it that's also important to talk about. Yes, I appreciate that. Now, to your question, most important thing. I think the most important thing is to continually commit to affirming the identities of the learners. Mm. In affirming them, challenging them to research and share their experiences, their histories, and doing that simultaneously, as in we're also researching and sharing our own and theirs. Why do I say our own and theirs? Even white folks in this country, many white folks, are not necessarily fully tapped into their histories.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Not fully tapped into their ethnic background. Mm-hmm. That I. I think that's an important thing that white folks need to wrestle with. And I also think that our, our students would be better served if we're uplifting the diversity of cultures represented in our classrooms. And sometimes you have classrooms where there's not a diversity of cultures, fine, but we live in a country that's extremely diverse. And we have technology that allows us to connect with others. And so the affirmation of identity, but also the encouragement to celebrate the identity of others so that we learn to appreciate other people and the differences that they bring to the table. Some folks view the word diversity as uh, I don't know. It's almost like diversity for some words is for some folks. It's like a cuss word,
0: right? Uh,
1: when it's, when I wish folks would just look at that and understand. Like, no, when we're talking about diversity, we're talking about differences, and we all have differences. We all bring differences to the table. What are your differences? Let's hear it. Let's share that. But let's peel back the layers. Don't just tell me about who you are, tell me about your family, tell me what your understanding is. Are there multiple languages in your family's heritage? What are the ethnic cultures in your heritage? What can we learn about you that we could celebrate with you? And so I'd love to see more of that. And that's a step one. Right, because what I see is we have a lot of young people who don't feel that they are celebrated. They don't see themselves reflected in the curriculum. And in many cases, they also don't see themselves reflected in school leadership and school staff.
0: Which is incredibly important. So you said a whole lot there. And I agree with it all, including, I love that you clarified the migration pattern of African-Americans. I think that's incredibly important to consider in the idea and the concept of talking about migration. Secondly, I teach therapists that you need to know about your client. You can't act like your client on the scene. And that's what you're saying with teachers. You can't come in and see your class as a Eurocentric base. Yes. You have to look at, and what's so interesting about that to me is European culture, Eurocentric culture is so individualistic, yet when it comes into a classroom, a space that has diverse faces and cultures, immediately they go to, everybody should learn from this base. It's mm. interesting, right? Because it's a contradiction. Mm. It's like for being so individualistic in life, in your own journey, but then when it comes to a space that holds others, all of a sudden it's, oh no the learning is all the same. How does that make sense? It's it's, so what you're saying is to consider your audience.
1: Absolutely. So even if you didn't commit to, in this case, let's talk about math. Fine, let's say we continue teaching math the way we do in this country. But what if we presented opportunities to expose our learners to different ways of knowing math? So for example, in this culture, they teach math this way. Now, I'm not saying, oh, we're teaching math like that the rest of the year, but we don't even stop to allow our learners to consider that, oh, there's different ways of learning math. Right. I've been, there's a newsletter I'm subscribed to, Urban Intellectuals. They're having a math session for parents next week. Okay, great. to, To get into, Again, a different way that math can be taught. I might show up to the session if it works with my schedule just so I could see, just so I could be exposed to something. different. I would even not just for myself, but I'd love to talk to my kids about that. Keep in mind, I'm not a math person, but I value different perspectives, different cultures, different ways of doing things even if i don't necessarily commit to doing it like that at this stage the way i learn math is the way i learn again not a math person not good at math i would love for our school leaders and our teachers to lead with curiosity mm. especially in those areas in which they may feel some discomfort i would say that's okay. <laughs> I agree. Wrestle I wrestle with that discomfort.
0: Yeah. Like that discomfort is your problem, not the kids. So Absolutely. Sit with it. Sit with it.
1: And we we all have discomforts that we have to sit with, right? Right. Every day there are situations that we walk into them like this feels uncomfortable. Right. But this is the situation. Let me learn how to navigate through that. And so I'm sure that our school leaders and and teachers lead with curiosity in many areas. And there's some areas, especially when we're talking about the anti-bias, anti-racist work that we engage in, there's, there's room for growth.
0: I want to add a piece to that, which is the imposter syndrome. Particularly with new mm. teachers and teachers who've been out a long time, which makes it challenging, right? Because this idea that you have to act like you know all. You went to mm. school. Same thing with therapists. You have to act you know what you're doing and you have to be this, that, and the other. Actually, all you have to be is present and authentic.
1: Present.
0: And, and be willing to be, you know, I, I coined this phrase that students love a lot, which is awkwardly authentic. Mm. If you're figuring it out, what feels better to another human being than to know you're human? And I I feel like that's what you're talking about. That's so missed. It's so missed and so important in classrooms and in classrooms of life, not just
1: school. Listen, we make mistakes all the time. We're not perfect. We're growing and learning like everyone else. Now we're engaged in this work. So we're, where we're at in the spectrum of this anti-bias, anti-racist work. But we also didn't just show up and get there overnight. It's been that commitment to being present, that commitment to being authentic, that commitment to sharing how we really feel, but also remaining open to understanding different perspectives. And then being an active listener, understanding intent versus impact trying to meet people where they're at and doing so in a manner in which we challenge and encourage. Mm -hmm. And so, nah, you don't have to show up knowing everything and being a a master of this work that we engage in because guess what? Tomorrow's gonna be different. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow something else is gonna happen. Things surface, things change, things evolve, right? And so we just need to remain learners. We need to stay hungry to grow. We need to be in proximity with one another. We need to engage in experiences in which we're taking the time to reflect and share out. To me, some of the greatest growth that I've experienced has been working with others, processing different scenarios, reflecting together, and being given that space to share in authenticity. And so I wonder what it would look like in our schools if we created more space For people to reflect, to process together, to share out, to lean into this work, to lean into the discomfort in a way in which it's clear that we have created an intentional space for you to do this, for you to speak honestly, in an intentional space where we've been transparent that we are also going to challenge you to grow
0: as a cultural experience that's the culture of the school we challenge each other so i want to shift gears for the time we have left and i want to talk about the origin of multicultural classroom where do yeah. we
1: start where do we start lorena and i we worked in schools for a long time lorena as an english teacher i started as an english teacher and transition into school leadership. Okay. So it was an admin, administration in different roles for years. Director of Multicultural Affairs, assistant principal, lead principal, all the roles. We thankfully had enough opportunities in different places to experience some things and consider how it is that we could potentially fill a gap in the areas that we felt schools were falling short. We got to a place where we didn't just want to complain about the issues. Mm. We wanted to be part of the solution. And so in our transition from Massachusetts to Texas, we started to develop this idea of us doing our own thing, serving as consultants, bringing our talents forward, doing publications. Simultaneously, Lorena and three other powerful women created a hashtag movement, hashtag DisruptTax. Oh. And that really took off. And as a result also brought some attention to multicultural classroom. So there were things that were developing simultaneously, but we never were able to get it to the next level because when you're working full time, it's hard for you to for your business to take off if you're not fully invested in it. In the past couple of years, things changed due to the pandemic. And that allowed us to really make some decisions where we were gonna take a leap of faith and say, you know what, it, it's now or never. Wow. If we're really gonna be about multicultural classroom, we gotta go all in. But to, to your question, this really came from that gap of professional development experiences, meaningful professional development mm-hmm. experiences, the gap we were seeing in terms of strong school leaders, the need we were seeing for teachers to, to receive some support that would expand their toolbox and give them more confidence, give them an approach that can meet the needs of their students. And so with that, we decided to self-publish. Lorena wrote, she wrote the anti-racist teacher reading instruction workbook. We said, you know what? Let's self-publish it. Mm-hmm. See what happens. Mm-hmm. We did so, took on a life of its own, opened up more opportunities for us to serve schools and districts and other orgs. Then Heinemann Publishing became interested in Lorena publishing a book through them, which she did, Textured Teaching, a framework for culturally sustaining pedagogies. Uh, and CSP, culturally sustaining pedagogy, that, you no, know, that, that came from Django Paris. The work Lorena did there was influenced by Dr. Django Paris, who's also a mentor and friend And so we've just been fortunate enough to have a diversity of educational experience in terms of professionals, but also to have each other and have a good network of support around us who encourage us to move forward with this idea of multicultural classroom. That's amazing.
0: I just have such a smile. How you both just Came together, figured out, and pushed forward. That's amazing, really. Congratulations on your success. But well, you. I just want to thank you so much for coming on. I obviously, if you hadn't noticed, could talk to you for a whole other hour. But instead, I'm really hoping you'll come back so we can talk about it some more, because I think there's a lot more to explore. Please tell everybody where they can find you all.
1: Yes, absolutely. And we'll have to have Lorena on at some point also. Awesome.
0: Great. i love that.
1: So we could be found at Multicultural Classroom across all platforms. Our website is multiculturalclassroom.com where you'll find plenty of resources. Some of them are free because we wanna be able to bless people. We wanna be able to support people. So you can go and subscribe to the website, access some free resources, teaching guides, Posters, so on and so forth. Videos of me sharing my poetry. I should also mention that I am working on a young adult's poetry book, wow. Bluing Tears. My editor got me stressed, but I'm going to work <laughs> through the feedback and we're going to make it happen. Multicultural Classroom, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, TikTok. We're most active on. Instagram, but you could find us on the other uh, platforms, including YouTube. And certainly we have the podcast, our classroom, Mm -hmm. where we talk about education, but not just the four walls of the schoolhouse. Mm -hmm. And we talk about education and our journeys through education and how it's impacting us and how it might relate to what happens in schools. Mm -hmm. So it's been a pleasure to be on and uh, appreciate the work that you're doing with Change the Narrative. Continue to push it forward. You've had some great interviews and wonderful guests. Very insightful. So salute to you. Thank you. Um, Always want to give the flowers where they're due. And... Not everybody's committed to presenting all these topics that you've been presenting around social justice and mental health. These are necessary conversations in all of our communities. Absolutely. Regardless of how you identify.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So uh, thank you for what you're doing, all of you who are part of this group here and part of this platform. And I appreciate the the time to share with y'all. I I
0: received that wholeheartedly and, and thank you so much. I'm gonna give you the final word as we take it out. What would you like to say?
1: In these uncertain times where there is a constant tension in the air that derives from racial undertones, let us not be afraid to have the courage to build community, Mm. to love radically, and to stand on our values. This is a beautiful and ugly country in many ways. I love to see us commit to making it more beautiful than ugly. Mm.
0: Well, I have to say this, just the power of that last statement, you absolutely have to come back and share your poetry. So I'm going to need to have you both come back and please bring your poetry when you do. That was so powerful and a perfect way to end. Thank you so much, brother. I appreciate you. Thank you. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Please be sure to like, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.